tenía siete años apenas, apenas siete años. ¿Qué siete años? No llegaba a cinco siquiera. De pronto unas voces en la calle me gritaron, ¡Negra! 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 ¿Soy acaso negra? Me dije. ¡Sí! ¿Qué cosa es ser negra? ¡Negra! Yo no sabía la triste verdad que aquello escondía. ¡Negra! Y me sentí negra. ¡Negra! Como ellos decían. ¡Negra! Y retrocedí. ¡Negra! Como ellos querían. ¡Negra! Yo di mis cabellos y mis labios gruesos y miré apenada mi carne tostada y retrocedí. ¡Negra! Y retrocedí. amargada, seguía llevando a mi espalda mi pesada carga, y como pesaba. Me alací el cabello, me polvé la cara, y entre mis entrañas siempre resonaba la misma palabra. ¡Negra, negra, 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 negra! Hasta que un día que retrocedía, retrocedía y que iba a caer. ¡Negra, negra, 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 negra! ¿Y qué? ¿Y qué? ¡Negra! ¡Sí! ¡Negra! ¡Soy! ¡Negra! 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 ¡Soy! ¡Negra! 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 ¡Soy! ¡Yo y en adelante no quiero! Lasear mi cabello, no quiero. Y voy a reírme de aquellos que por evitar, según ellos, que por evitarnos algún sin sabor llaman a los negros gente de color. ¿Y de qué color? Negro. ¿Y qué lindo suena? Negro. ¿Y qué ritmo tiene? Negro, 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 negro. Al fin, al fin comprendí. Al fin, ya no retrocedo. Al fin, ya avanzo segura. Al fin. Avanzo y espero al fin y bendigo al cielo porque quito Dios que negro hasta base fue de mi color y ya comprendí al fin ya tengo la llave negro 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 Hey, what's up, you guys? <laughs> hey, what's up, you guys? Welcome to another episode of um, Red for the Proletariat. And uh, happy Black History Month. Just want to say that to all my fellow Afro-Latinx people um, in whatever spectrum that you find yourself in, both sexually and gender-wise. Happy Black History Month. You are important. You are valued. And I just want to say thank you for everything that you have contributed into um, what it is to be Latinx, because as you will go on this episode, Afro-Latinx people have contributed a lot. Um, so we are going to talk about um, really contributions that there is in 
mu- in uh, music because it's it's big. Like a lot of the music we listen to is heavily heavily influenced by African um, music, um, and yeah. So I mean, I guess we should just get right into it. Yeah, I mean, realistically, um, just wanted to give a brief overview. Yeah, like Joe, uh, fuck, like. Uh, <clears throat> Realistically, yeah, we just wanted to give a brief overview, like we were saying. Um, hopefully, you know, we can give a nice breakdown of musical history over the developments, you know, through the, uh, as a result of the diaspora, I should say, um, you know, that happened. And hopefully some also, like, just political, histo- you know, just general history overall as well to our contributions, to, you know, whether it be um, revolutionary history in Latin America um, or anything else like that, or just, you know, scientific discoveries, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um, so I will be mainly um, focusing on, like, I guess, mainstream music um, and Afro-Latinx um, contributions to that, um, you know, heavy African contributions to that. Um, I won't really be getting into the politics of, like, a lot of these artists, just because one, either they didn't have politics or the politics they have was very not the best. And I'd rather not go into that right now. Um, <laughs> so I will go into, I will start. There's just so many places to start. Um, I guess I'll start at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> um, so I'm going to start with talking about uh, trova music, uh, Cuban trova music, um, trova was really established uh, during the 1800s. Um, before that, I'm sure only the only thing not I'm sure the only thing that was really Cuban music, um, and I'm sure for a lot of different countries, actually, a lot of different countries in in Latin America um, that had uh, slaves was more of their their religious music. Um, you know, excuse me, uh, reli- they had religious music and. They they played the drums that helped them communicate with other, with other plantations. Um, quick fact: the United States actually not the United States, South Carolina, actually banned drums on plantations, so um, so slaves couldn't communicate with each other. They couldn't plant. That's how they planned actually revolts was through drum drums and like they say, oh, this is happening at this time. Are you guys in? And then they would reply with it. Um, and so what ended up happening there um, was after that was banned, they just started using anything they could find. Um, I don't know if anyone has heard um, of Hambone. That's a game that you play on your on your body. You go like Hambone, Hambone, something, something, something. I don't know the words. Um, yeah, that that's where that came from, and that was like a form of communication. They would stomp. Um, actually, the using of spoons in music comes from that. Like that's not a like you you think of like white southerners using like the spoons and like their Cajun music, but that actually comes from slaves. Dude, yeah, most of like most of southern music that like is like folksy that people like love is like just mainly like old slave music. Like, not here to talk. Well, actually, I am here to talk shit on white culture, white American culture specifically, just because it's, like, heavily rooted in just, um, like, whitewashed African culture. Yeah, so, anyway, uh, back to 
to Trova. Uh, so Trova music um, really started in the 1800s, like I said. Um, it was it was quote unquote simple music just because it wasn't um, complex. It wasn't a, like a big symphony. It just had two instruments. Um, it had the it had a drum like a congo or um, just something very simple like that that you can carry around because those musicians moved around from city to city. Um, and just a small guitar or a regular guitar, and they just told story, different stories, like love stories, stories of different towns. It wasn't too. It wasn't like something extravagant. Um, so after that uh, came boleros. Um, boleros started really late 1800s, 18. I want to say 1897 around, and started the early 1900s. So yeah, Boleto started in the early 1900s. Um, they were actually, it was actually Trova music, uh, but it was sped up um, and, it, and it added more, um, more, I guess, symphonic tones to it. Um, it, had, it had different instruments added to it, um, different, different uh, sounds, like instruments really is what, what they added to it. And um, boleros are really more of love songs, romantic songs, is what they have mostly focused on. Um, the first actually actual bolero was written by Jose uh, Pepe Sanchez um, in 19, in the late 1800s. I have the date somewhere here, somewhere here. But yeah, the first song is called Tristeza. Um, yeah, that was written then, and, and it was the standard as well. It turned into the standard for, for quite some time until in the, the 1930s when, um, when bolero music split into different types of genres. Um, there came pachanga, there came... No, actually, just kidding. That did not come out of pachanga. Um, they just did different types. They had son, danzon, um, it just started to expand more of different kinds. So once that became the standard, um, sorry, I'm like siphling through my notes. So once that becomes the standard um, in Cuba, there's there's people emigrating. There's people emigrating from Cuba, going to New York. Um, Going to mainly New York is where all of this music comes from. Um, they start settling, settling in in what starts to become Spanish Harlem in the early 1920s, 1930s. Um, so they move, they move there, and they're they're introduced to jazz, right? So that the jazz movement is just starting to take off, and the people are just like going into different bars, and they hear jazz, and they're just like so in love with it. Right, because jazz, jazz changed music. Really, is what it did, um, uh, and 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 that's where that's where mambo comes in. That's where mambo was created um, in in Spanish Harlem. Um, in in Cuba, the the it went back and forth, right? So Cubans um, also had stuff coming in from New York. So Mama was starting to take off there too, but it didn't really, they really didn't take off there. It just had roots there. Yeah, it just had roots there. 
um, because there was there was back and forth moving of of jazz, of really of what was was what it was of jazz. And and uh, so you had you had uh, Rene Perez Prado, uh, Damaso Perez Prado. Este, he went to Mexico. Um, he started the Mambo movement in Mexico. Um, and then you also have Rene Hernandez, who came from Cuba to New York, um, and he he started the the Mambo movement in New York. So Mambo really took off in two different places, uh, Mexico and New York. That's really the, like a big theme in like all of Latin American music is it finds either its its footing in New York, or it finds its footing in Mexico, and that's where it ha that's how it takes off. Um, I don't really know why, but I'm sure that's just like a hotbed of music. I don't know. Um, so yeah, so I will talk about a little bit of uh, of Mambo's origins. Uh, Mambo came from a fusion of of what is um, Cuban son and danzon, um, which was uh, like I said, trova music and bolero music that was just sped up, and they added they added they added even more. Um, African rhythm to it, so there was more drum to it, there was more congo to it, there was more timbales to it. Um, they they just they added more of that, they added more uh, brass to it too. Um, so so yeah, and that's where mambo comes from. Um, and danzon uh, actually comes from uh, contra da contra dances from Europe, uh, which was combined with livelier African rhythms. So the what 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 happened there was like kind of what happened with merengue of like um the slaves mimicking the way that their their uh, slave owners danced right and then adding their music to it and like copy like more making fun of their their slave owners of the way they danced and then they put their music on top of it so that's where merengue comes from and that's where son and danzon comes from um, and the first Mambo song was titled Mambo. Um, uh, and it was written by two brothers, Orestes and Cachao Lopez in 1938. Um, and Mambo, yeah, like I said, Mambo is song with heavier African beats. Um, so later comes, during that same time, comes our boy Tito Puente, um, who is the opening song for this podcast. Um, so Tito Puente is... A son of a Puerto Rican immigrant, uh, he was born in New York and grew in grew up in Spanish Harlem. He was a professional musician at the age of 13, and then ended up going to Juilliard. Um, he served an apprenticeship actually with the famous band called the uh, Machito. Uh, it was called Machito Orchestra, and they played a lot of mambo. They started playing mambo because they were Cuban uh, mambo, and they were a lot of bolero. Um, so, so that's what Tito played. Tito played mambo, um, and, and Tito took off. The people loved mambo. It was just new. Um, it was different. It was a different sound. Mambo is, mambo, I, was re I was watching this documentary um, called We Like It Like That. Um, I Like It Like That is actually a mambo song. For those of you who just know it as the Cardi B song, it's not. It's an actual mambo song. Um, so it... Mambo is a fusion of of African of African American jazz 
and and spat and Spanish and Latin what's called Latin jazz, right? For a lack of a better term, they they just called it Latin jazz because it was funky, it was different. Um, there were some notes, some similarities to jazz of like the blue notes and the contradicting notes and just the upbeat tempo of it as well, as well that it could go like slow down as well, like jazz can. Um, I lost my place. Bring down what mambo. Oh, so mambo, yeah. So, and, and mambo, as Tito Puente like used to say and other big mambo artists, they would just say... Um, like their lyrics were, some of the songs had lyrics, not all of them, and the lyrics were very simple too. Um, they, it was just, that was the mixture of it because they lived so close to each other. Like there, there was bound to be like um, coming together somewhere, right? Like there's this scene where they're talking about, yeah, I mean, people, African-Americans were making sofrito and, and mofongo and they were, they were making traditional Puerto Rican plates and the Puerto Ricans were making traditional black plates. Like they were eating cornbread and um, what is it called? Hogmod? Hogwash? I don't know. Yeah, a lot of inter- it was inter- just like an intermingling of the two cultures. Yeah, that goes way back, especially in New York. Um, that's, yeah, it's like, um, like you can tell, like just like uh, black and brown unity. I mean, mainly through like the Afro Latinx connection, right? Um, but yeah, just how far back it goes, it's, it's really nice. Like we've, hasn't always been the most harmonious relationship, but I mean, we do have a lot of record, you know, a lot on record of uh, where we've been united. So, yeah, they're they're just talking about like everyone was playing music and they would open their windows and then in the streets, right? You would just hear the music and you were playing ball. Um, they called it. They didn't call it baseball. They called it stickball. I think they played stickball with each other down in the streets. Um, yeah, so that's that's Mambo, um, and then eventually Mambo started to lose. M- Mambo wasn't really um, popular during the 1930s and 1940s. It really took off during the 1950s, um, 1951. Um, it it just it was mainly pop. Mambo was re- really popular with like the gringos and like. Uh, upper middle class gringos. Um, they thought it was cool, um, and and they danced it. They danced. They liked the sound of it. They didn't really dance it. They liked the sound of it. It was it was you know, for them exotic. Um, so that 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 was that was mambo. It took off really in nineteen fifties. Um, everybody was dancing in nineteen fifty one. It started dying down in the um, late fifties. 58, 59, 60s, um, and that's when Bugalu came in. Uh, Bugalu was, it was, what can't be said of Bugalu is what I'm trying to say is, Bugalu was everything. Um, it was just a new sound, right? So the 1960s, right, there's, there's this stirring of, of like change. Right, it was really what the 1960s, rep- 1960s and early 70s represent as a time of change, of like finding where you belong and and challenging that status quo, um, and and moving away from the old stuff. So Bugalu starts to come in, and it's just and, and it is a buildup of mambo. So mambo mambo starts to die down. Mambo splits into cha 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 and Bugalu. 
and Bugalu is it was it was it was a it was challenging the old way of thinking, right? Because Mambo was just like, oh yeah, you dance with a partner and it's very like close and and Bugalu didn't have a specific way to dance to it. You just felt the music and you danced. It was it was risque, really. It was what it was. It was really risque, right? Like at that at around that time, I think is when um, the twist comes out, right? So people are like twisting their bodies, lifting up their starting to lift up their skirts, um, right? The mini skirt comes out during that time, and thigh highs start to come out at that time too. So it's a really big time of rebellion, and you have people like um, like uh, what is his name? Um, Joy ba- Joe Batan who, who uh, was was in and out of jail and finally like found his calling in music and he taught himself how to play music. He in the in the documentary he talks about um, how he broke in to um, the church. Yeah, he broke into the church to play the piano because he was so interested in the piano because his family couldn't afford one. So he broke in and the father catches him and he says, he says, Father, I didn't steal anything. I didn't touch anything. I just wanted to play with the piano. And um, so, yeah, Boogaloo takes off, and it's just, it's more upbeat, and it has different sounds, and it has more jazz sounds into it now. There's more riffs. There's more contradicting notes. Um, and um, hold on, I have to find my notes. At least I hope I took notes on Bugalu. I really don't know if I did. I'm just going to go off based off of memory now. Uh, so Bugalu was the, the essence of, of New Yorkans, right? New York Puerto Ricans. It was, it was who they are. And like I said, Joey Batan, Joe Batan and uh, Johnny Colon, um, all these different artists, Pete, Peter something, if I can remember the name. Um, Joe Cuba, uh, Joe Cuba really was was really. It's debatable. A lot of these these bands that started to pop up, um, they they all claim to have the first Boogaloo song, um, but I I personally would think that Joe Cuba had the first Boogaloo song. Um, it was Bang Bang. Um, it was the. It was very. It was very. Uh, they had no lyrics actually. So what happened with that song was um, they Joe Cuba was playing in a in a club with his with his friends and it was an all African American club, um, and they were playing they were playing Spanish music. So they were yeah they were playing Spanish music in um, in predominantly a an African American or black um, club. Right, so they're playing. They're playing boleros and they're playing guajiras and they're playing um, mambo there, and the people weren't really feeling it. Um, and then one of Joe's um, bandmates comes up to him and says, "Hey, I have a little, have a little tune that we can, that we can try." And Joe Cuba, um, <laughs> he, he's he's just like he's like, "What the fuck do you mean? ¿Qué estás diciendo, right? Like, what do you mean? We're playing this." Um, and he's like, "No, dude, like, listen, like." Trust me, with this little tune, we we can we can do something here, and he said, "Okay, pues." And then, 
they play they ended up playing what's called Bang Bang. That's where that song came that's where that song was created in that club at that moment to try and get the people to dance. So they start playing the tune. I mean hopefully we can just insert it so they can hear. Um so they that that song comes out and the the lyrics are what are the lyrics? It's um yeah. But there's this, like, yeah, anyway, they start bang, 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 and they start saying, um, there was this, the, the crowd started saying, she freaks, ah, uh, she freaks, ah, uh, she freaks, and, and, like, that was really, like, oh, whoa, whoa, slow down there, that's a little too explicit, a little too explicit for the time, um, yeah, yeah, so, so they they start seeing she freaks, and then once they recorded the song, um, they start they switch it over to saying beep beep, uh, beep beep. Um, and the second time they played it at the club, like no, the the crowd said no no no, it's she freaks, uh, she freaks, <laughs> and 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 yeah, it was like I was saying, it's it was a time of pushing against the status quo and like. Coming up with different sounds and and challenge. It was really challenging the upper class because um, mambo was when you performed mambo, you wore a suit. The people who who danced it were very well dressed, right? Because you went, it was you went to like a it was like going to a symphony because they did have a huge orchestra with them, and that changed with with uh, bugalu. They were still very well dressed when they went to perform, but the people that were there dancing now were it was no longer people who went to a symphony and were were like uh, what it would be considered like business casual, right? Some like slacks and a button up shirt, but that's not buttoned up all the way. Um, no more suits. Uh, they 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 were people ordinary people wearing jeans and a t shirt, um, just going out and dancing and and having a fun time. Like that, that completely changed, and and that's that's how they started challenging. It started, Bukalu became the music for the working class. Um, it that's that was like their anthem. They they danced in the streets. They they held they they held concerts like in the streets. Like this is nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, um, if I remember correctly, right? That's that like parts of New York were like crumbled, especially like in in like what would be considered the projects, right? That the, the, all those areas were crumbled. Not com- crumbled, but falling apart. So all those like abandoned areas, they would go and have concerts there and people would show up and 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 dance. And it'd be like 1 a.m., not 1 a.m., 1 p.m. And like a certain park would be packed with people dancing and just a small group of, peop- of people performing. Um so right, so it's the 1960s, and um, the Black Power movement is taking off. Um, there wasn't really like a, a power movement specifically for Latinos or Afro-Latinos at the time, especially Puerto Ricans. Um, there was, but it wasn't as strong as what I'm trying to say. And there wasn't um, 
it it just it was different. It was different compared to to the black struggle. Um, and it's and they emphasize that too in the documentary it, it, that it was different. Um, so they 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 there was right there there what was that group called of Puerto Ricans? Young Lords, exactly. The Young Lords, they they adopted some like boogaloo, and they made like protest songs too. Like they they emphasized like a lot of like, um, more or less nationalism, right? They took pride in in being Puerto Rico, being Puerto Rican, and and calling for freedom of Puerto Rico, right? And like rights for for Puerto Ricans in New York and respect. Um, and yeah, they, they adopted, and there was this, I forgot the name of that, of that guy, but he made a song called, called I, I am, what did you say? I am black, I am white, and I am red. Um, just, just saying that he was mixed and he was, he was Puerto Rican, saying that he had like Indian, indigenous blood in him, red and black from, from slaves and white from, from, uh, um, the Spanish, and I mean, we can get into the politics of that later. Um, but at that time, that was revolutionary. That was that was him taking pride in like who he truly was. Um, so so yeah, it it did ended up taking roots there. Um, then towards the end of the 1960s, uh, Boogaloo started to die off. There's this big conspiracy that a lot of those artists have of like. Not conspiracies, but uh, saying that Boogaloo was forced to die, um, just because there were there was people who literally paid radio stations to not play Boogaloo. Yeah, like Tito, uh, like Tito Puente hated Boogaloo, hated it. He thought it was stupid. He thought it was nonsense. He thought it, he he saw it for what it was a challenge to, towards the the old ways of of music, and he thought it was. Um, it was just despicable, like, like no, this is not okay. So it starts to die. It starts to die, um, and that's when we have the introduction of salsa. Salsa comes co- comes in as as Boogaloo starts to die, and and salsa is is was and is like what I think a lot of Latin Americans take pride in, like. My country salsa, because every country has salsa, and every country salsa is is a little bit different, but like the foundations are all the same, right? So I don't know if anyone has seen El Cantante, but there's this scene with Willy Colon, um, who I'll talk about in a bit. Willy Colon, he 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 starts talking about salsa and what it is, and he he uh, goes and says. You know, we take a little bit of a uh, mambo, some jazz, some um, some jazz, some some bolero the lyrics of like bolero, merengue, um, and you mix it all together, and you get salsa. We make some salsa with it, and and it was just it, yeah, that's what it that's what salsa is. really a mixture of like all these different types of Latin American music. Um, right, it it still it still has that that um, that mambo and that and and that uh, 
the jazz beats to it, right? It still has all those major drums that never the the tr- the, the drums, the trumpets, the timbal, the congo, um, but it adds more riffs to it. It adds more jazz elements into it. Is what salsa did, and it added more. It just it it really the jazz uh, salsa really just took off during that time, right? There was there there was um, I mean everybody knows Celia Cruz, right? She, she helped uh, take take that off during the 19, 1970s as well. But you have people like yeah, like Willie Colon and Johnny Pacheco who started Fania, um, and recruiting a lot of these artists and focusing on on salsa because the way people felt about salsa was different than what they felt about Boogaloo because Boogaloo really pertained really to New York and like New Yorican um, identity. Like that's who they were. They were like, yeah, this is, you know, this is who we New Yorkans are. We're Boogaloo. This is our music because we, we are, we're, we, we have black in us and we have Harlem black with us and we have Spanish Harlem, I guess Latinos you wanted to say. Um, but we, we come together and we create this boogaloo um, or, or Latin jazz or whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and salsa was different. Salsa was, was an all-encompassing uh, genre of music that, that took into consideration, you know, Colombia, um, Venezuela, um, even, even Central America, I would go even to say maybe um, they even have their own versions of salsa. Um, Mexico. Right, so salsa starts to take off, and it has so many roots. Like I said, it has mambo. Um, there's cha-cha-cha uh, mixed into there as well. There's bomba y plena from Puerto Rico. Um, and it's just the big Afro, Spanish, and Caribbean, like, fusion. Um, so... You have Willie Colon, who is, I hope everyone who listens to Salsa knows who Willie Colon is. Um, he's New Yorican. He was born in, in Spanish Harlem. He's from El Barrio, like everyone says there. Um, they, a lot of people were skeptical. By a lot of people, I mean a lot of the older sounds were skeptical of, like, Salsa. Um, Tito Puente, again, was like, was like, oh yeah, salsa. He would like, he would like, um, he would bash on like Willie Colon when he was a kid, and like say, yeah, you're not gonna go anywhere with this kid. Like, Mambo's never gonna die, because Mambo really hasn't died. It's been brought back in in different ways. But yeah, uh, he Willie Colon was 16 years old when he signed o- over to um, Fania Records. Um, you know, with with Dominican band leader Johnny Pacheco. And the the CEO, who was Italian actually, uh, Jay, Jerry Masucci, um, yeah, he he made went off to make songs with Hector Lavoe mostly, not mostly, but he his biggest hits were with Hector. Um, he worked he worked a lot of in producing after um, he kind of got like tired of being in the scene, of being at performing, being at clubs, at bars. Um, yeah, he that that's really Willie Colon is all I really can really say. Um, he dedicated most of his time after like 1973 to producing records, um, but he collaborated a lot with different people. Uh, Celia Cruz, um, he's been nominated several times for Grammy awards. Um, he 
uh, advocated a lot for like AIDS, AIDS relief, right? During that, during the AIDS crisis in the eighties, um, he was like on the, he was, he helped the, with the UN, the UN, like, um, immigrant and refugee relief. Um, not a lot, of, a lot of these people didn't really have a lot of political aspirations, aspirations um, just because they were caught up in the, in that time, in that moment. Um, but yeah, and and because of that as well, being caught up in that time in the moment, they got involved in a lot of like drug deals. Um, drug deals moved a lot during in, during all those scenes actually. Um, Bugalu and and Salsa more specifically. Um, for those of you like who know, like Willy Colon and Hector Lavoe were like heavy heroin addicts for a while, so much that it took um, Hector Lavoe's life, um, not from a drug overdose, but how much drugs he was using. Um, like combined, like hero- he was so shot up on heroin and then he had to perform that same night so he would be so high off cocaine and like cocaine, like he would do cocaine right after heroin and like he was just like out of it. It was just too much, right? That took eventually, it took a whole big hold on his mental health. Um, but yeah, they, they all they all moved in that and there's, in, in the documentary as well, we like it like that. They They talk about um, there's this one guy who says like, yeah, I was done performing, and I was like, okay, waiting for it to get paid, and they just hand me a pound of cocaine, and like, here you go, and he's like, I don't, I don't want this. I want, you know, green. Give me money. And they said, and then someone walks in with a with a rifle and like cocks it, and he's like, you know what, this is fine. I will take this. And yeah, th- there was there was a dark side to to this music industry. A lot of people were actually paid peanuts, right? To to others. Um so like for for example, um the all, like Joe Joe Batan, uh Joe Cuba, um all those other small small band orchestras like compared to to uh Sorry, I lost my place. To Tito Puente, like they they charge one third of what Tito Puente was playing. So they so Fania could throw um, a concert and have all three of them there for the same price of just paying Tito Puente, who would only play an hour, compared to them paying playing one hour each, so they can get across to so many more people than just when they got Tito Puente, yeah. and and that was really like like the decline and like. How how fast they went through people with Bugalu. That's why there's so many different Bugalu artists. Um, like you're not gonna find like like salsa artists now, right? Like people like no Mark Anthony and and Celia Cruz and Joe Arroyo and different orchestras. Um, but they they went through so many artists, bat, orchestras and artists during that time so quickly because they were they could pay them so little because they wanted to to profit off of them, right? Like they, there was even a slogan that I think Jerry had from Fania Records, or it was Tico Records, that said, I'll make you famous, but I won't make you rich, right? Because like Joe Batan says in the documentary too, he says, yeah, I was given a 1965 new Cadillac um, that was convertible and $400. And I said, ooh, I'm balling. He's, he's like, yeah, I have money. Like I'm making so much money when the CEO just walked off with a million bucks and he just got a car and $400. Right? 
right? They were really taking advantage. Um, I mean, that really just catches us up till now, to the present. Um, actually, I did want to talk about two more people. Um, I want to go back to Boleros. Um, I mainly want to talk about La Lupe. Um, you know, let's not forget our um, women, you know, Afro, Afro-Latinas. Um, so yeah, like I said, Bolero is old school music. Um, it comes from Trova. Um, so La Lupe was born in 1936 in Santiago de Cuba. Um, her family actually wanted her to be a teacher, just like Celia Cruz's family wanted her to be a teacher. Um, she ended up marrying in, in 58 um, and started a band. Um, started a, fa- a band with her, her husband, and, and another female lead. Um, the band ended up ended up falling apart 1961-ish. Um, her husband was garbage. He ended up cheating on her with the fe- other female lead. Yeah, the, 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 the marriage collapsed and so did the, the band. For obvious reasons. For obvious reasons because men can't keep it in their pants. Um, so she ended up, she still ended up performing. Um, she, she, ended, she performed in small clubs um, by herself. Um, but around that time was the, was the Cuban Revolution, right? So 1962, she's having a hard time. Um, the thing about about La Lupe is that for those people who don't know her, she was very um, dramatic in the way that she performed. She would pull her own hair. She would like rip off parts of her clothing. She would um, have. She would yell and like or. It would sound like an orgasm, um, and that was very, like, taboo at the time, right? Like, she's, like, having an orgasm in front of, like, a crowd of people and stripping naked. Um, and she was just very dramatic and, um, I don't want to say volatile, but it was, like, prone. Huh? Provocative? I, provocative, too. Is, at that is time. A word. Uh, provocative at that time. And like, would always really get into like, to like fights. Um, yeah, she would like throw shoes at like the people, at like at, at, the, at the orchestra. Like, yeah, just just to do it. Like she would throw her shoes at them or like start swinging at them. I guess she would. She would. Just, I guess she would just get caught up in like performing and like making a show that it just went turned violent and like good energy. Not good energy. Uh, she, she. So yeah, the, the Cuban Revolution hits, and I mean, from the stuff that I was reading, I, she wasn't a very good representation of Cuba, is what the government thought. So then she ended up going into exile. Um, she came into. She was very popular, so they just thought, like, yeah, this is not what we need at the moment. This is not the, the face that we want to show for Cuba at this moment. Um, just someone who's very provocative for that time. I mean, we can get into the discussion of... Chauvinism. Yeah, like, what was, if that was machismo and, like, what that really was. Um, I mean, that was. But it wasn't revolutionary enough in the regards to, like, at least cultural, like, culturally towards women. I think the feminist. Well, if we're gonna talk about like the feminist wave and the and the one from the seventies, uh, I think that was the third, right? The third yeah. 
Or that was that the second wave? I think it was the third. Okay. It was. I'm not too sure. And I apologize. Um, was that the second or the third wave uh, of feminism, right, during the 60s and 70s that really, I guess, like challenged those notions of you know women's bodies and like oh, obviously over the last 30, 40 years, like that's really changed. But yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, ton of chauvinism during the Cuban Revolution. I mean, during a lot of revolutions at the time, even you know like during the 60s and 70s here, like let's be honest, like it wasn't like the best. We've definitely progressed even further, and I think, you know, I, like we can address and look back now, yeah, it's it definitely shot me. Yeah, no, it definitely wasn't wasn't right, and I won't defend that at all. You can't defend it. You really can't. Mm-hmm. Um, so she ends up finding her way in 62 here in New York, of course, so she she's there, and she meets um, the famous band... Um, the Machito Orchestra, um, who was who was doing mambo, um, and they were still trying to play mambo. They played small gigs. Um, they she meets them and she she plays with them and she goes on to make ten albums with them. Um, and she ends up meeting she ends up meeting Tito Puente, um, and he loves loves her voice. A lot of people say that her that she yells and doesn't sing, but he says no, she sings. It's just louder and raspier than than others, that's all it is. Um, so he really supported her. Um, she, said, she has some really iconic songs. Uh, La Gran Tirana, uh, Que Te Pedi, uh, Puro Teatro. She, she, was, she was a woman of her time. Um, she ended up you know, falling into that, the, I guess the wrong crowd. Um, you know, she felt an addiction. Um, she ended up losing all her money. She was a single mother of two kids and ended up homeless with them. Um, yeah, she ended up disabled. She had like a, uh, an accident and, and broke her back and ended up homeless, disabled, and I mean, eventually died. Um, yeah, she, she ended up having a rough like end of years, but she did have some great highs of like performing and, and being at the top of her game <clears throat> excuse me game um and i mean because she because of how like eccentric and provocative she was they they ended up canceling her closing not closing out um yeah canceling her, her contract because it was just too much to deal with she would she would not show up to some performance and or she would show up late and then she'd just start fighting with the orchestra because they they weren't they're already playing without her or they weren't playing, and and yeah, but but La Lupe she she was she was like the first diva of like Latin America. So she's the queen of Latin soul, is what they call her. Um, so I mean, let's give give her a listen, um, and then I want to quickly move away from like um, New York style of music, so salsa, um, there's this lady called Susana Baca, she's still living now, um, she is from Peru, from Peru, and she sings, um, Afro-Peruvian music, so she's from a little, she's from a small, uh, town outside of, it's in Lima, but it's like, I don't know, it's like a couple of miles outside of Lima, but they still consider it part of Lima, I don't know, I don't know how their cities or provinces work in. Peru, um, but yeah, and she she's she's awesome. Uh, if anyone wants to give her a listen, she's she's dope. She so there's like a lot of African drums in it, um, 
and there's there's a there's different like indi- indigenous uh, aspects to it as well. Um, it's a lot of like kind of kind of protesty music in a way. Um, like it's what a lot of people would consider like um, folk music. Um, yeah, she she's dope. She. She founded the Insti- the Instituto Negro Continuo or the Black Continuum Institute um, in Peru. Uh, so that that dedicates to to continuing Afro-Peruvian music and Afro-Peruvian culture. Um, like people go in there and they learn of what Afro-Peruvian culture is and uh, music and and playing it. And she was actually part of uh, she was actually a minister of Peru as well. Uh, she was a cultural minister of Peru for a while. Uh, but yeah, I mean, she just she brought back to life Afro-Peruvian music, right? She she brought that back from like the brink of I guess extinction, and so did so did uh, Victoria Santa Cruz, uh, right? I was reading one of her seeing watching one of her interviews, and she and she was like, there was this white girl who moved into the neighborhood that was mainly indigenous and black. And they, they didn't have a sense of color between them um, in that community, in that neighborhood, until that white girl came and, and they said, and that white girl said, if that little black girl plays with us, I'm not playing. And, and she, was, she, she was just so taken aback, like, huh, so you just got here and you're calling the shots? And uh, her friends, like her indigenous friends, and like, that's a conversation that we need to have as well, like anti-blackness in indigenous and Latinx communities. Um, they they told her, yeah, you need to go, Victoria. Like she says, you don't want. We want to play with her. We prefer her over than you. Um, and I mean, that probably has to do a lot with colorism too. Like wanting to be with the white people, wanting to feel superior, wanting to feel superior, tired of feeling oppressed. Um, so so yeah, and then she, Victoria Santa Cruz is amazing. She has a song, um, Me llamaron Negra. Um, which I guess is more of like, uh, what huh? Like a resistance? No, that's not what I'm trying to, no, 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 uh, it's, what is, spoken word mm-hmm. is what, what, it, what it is. Um, but yeah, give that a listen to, probably put a link to that, um, in the notes. But yeah, I mean, they, they, they saved Afro culture in in their in their home countries um and that's that's amazing right what these what these women have done um to preserve their cultures and um make sure it it continues um it's your turn i'll hand over the mic all right all right so yeah i mean I honestly was very um, quite the history lesson. Yeah. Uh, definitely. I mean, it's it's really at least in my opinion, like you definitely um, get humbled, you know. And we have to realize, like, unfortunately, at least we don't view it that way. At least in America, just because um, here Latinx, you know, regardless if you're Afro Indigenous or you know of European descent, um, if you're a lot, well, it depends on you know, how white passing you are, right? Um, but like definitely just Latinx the identity as a whole is more, is an oppressed identity here in the United States right but in our home countries like that's we like the white Latinx or the Euro Latinx are 
the Americans, you know, like that's, that is your equivalent in your, in your home country. Um, and so like, you just get humbled in terms of like understanding, like, um, you know, the status quo being the dominant fucking European descendants. And so like, just the fact that you can, I don't know, go through history, you know, people like need to do that more, you know, and like, understand like how, like non-European our culture is, you know, and so, yeah, I don't know, like, especially, um, with the razor, you know, when we talked about the, uh, Misty Sakti identity, like, that's just one example, but, uh, Latini that, right, like, how, like, at least the, the main, na- mainstream narrative is, like, that Mestizo identity of, like, a blended, you know, people, um, but yeah, no, I mean, like, it's everywhere, especially, um, we're, if we're talking about, like, popular music, uh, in the present, right, we're gonna talk about reggaeton, and, like, how popular that is, um, and so, yeah, it's just, um, obvious, it's, I feel like it's more obvious in reggaeton, right, with the drum beats, um, those definitely are African drum beats, right, the dembo drum beat, the mainstream one, that, right, that it's in, like, every song, right, that we hear, um, uh, that's definitely rooted in Jamaican dance hall, um, which, where else is that going to come from, right, they didn't, they weren't, they didn't just show up in Jamaica, so, obviously, <laughs> And so, yeah, obviously that comes from the slave trade, the diaspora, which, I mean, we're no professionals in, but I mean, to get the gist of it, right, from the slave trade, transatlantic slave trade, you know, and just like having all those uh, influences from, uh, you know, uh, the slaves at the time, you know, having their own culture, you know, staying in touch with their roots, just like how heavily influenced that is, especially in Latin America, you know, because I mean, most people don't even understand, like, how, you know, African people even got there, and, it, you know, um, you know, not to continually, like, put people in a depressed-ass mood, but, yeah, colonization was a fucking bitch, you know, and it really wiped out the indigenous populations um, of the, you know, the many tribes that were there, um, you know, especially, we see that especially with the Aztecs, we see that especially with the Tyreno, Tyrenos in Puerto Rico, pretty much anyone in the, actually, the, Carib- the Caribbeans, you know, all the indigenous people there, they're completely wiped away. Um, but you know their descendants keeping their those roots alive. But not to go on a tangent, but to mainly talk about um, you know reggaeton as a whole. Um, well, at least um, you know just reading, going through everything, uh, you really find out it's a unique blend of you know uh, roots, which mainly come from Jamaica and Panama. Uh, it's rooted mainly um, when uh, at least in Jamaica, right reggae was taking off and it's uh people started uh combining different styles of beats overlapping them together and you know deciding where to put them so the way it started at first was they would get like two songs like a reggae song and then like a dance hall song and like overlap them and like sync them and like that's how they would play it and then like over time they just like started throwing that in naturally um so then like you get like you typically get like the first uh songs um, from like the uh, reggae dance hall in the early, not early, but like the late 80s and 90s, even the late 70s, um, you get like things like uh, reggae in espanol, in espanol, right? It like, um, is like the main influence in terms of like the crossover, which creates like reggaeton latino, reggaeton, right, in, in Spanish. Because I mean, reggae dance hall is pretty much reggaeton latino, reggaeton, right? But it's not sung in Spanish. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, but the influences of reggaeton as a whole are, are go much further than that. So it's mainly Jamaica and Panama, right? 
where it's mainly uh, influenced by. So it's not Puerto Rican? At least at first. <laughs> it's definitely Puerto Rican, um, and I'll get to that. But like the main reason why it's at least Jamaican and Pan Panamanian is because like of the Panama Canal, right? A lot of those immigrants, working class, uh, working class immigrants, obviously all immigrants are working class typically. Um, but yeah, working class immigrants went to Panama to build the Panama Canal. You know, they have Jamaican roots. They still listen to Jamaican music, um, you know, like dancehall, reggae. Um, but they're, you know, it's just like um, part of the diaspora. You know, they're very active in their identity. They're very aware of their identity being rooted in Jamaica and then being uh, rooted, you know, ultimately from, you know, in the motherland, so to speak, Africa. Um, right. And so um, that's like the main gist of it and there actually was a bit of beef in terms of who actually created the first uh like reggae dance hall um yeah between like panamanians and jamaicans like they were really like i don't know there was like a bit of a beef there just mm -hmm. because they were um like no we made it you know like this is our culture because like at least with uh, reggae in espanol like the first song was uh, came from panama from el general he was like a an artist from panama and he made the first song uh, I don't know what it was called. We'll we'll put a snippet in there. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> insert here. Insert here, right? Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely a uh, more of a diasporic movement. It has roots in Puerto Rico, the DR, the Dominican Republic, and New York as well. Um, Spanish Harlem, of course, specifically. Um, it always goes back to you know Spanish Harlem and uh, you know the intermingling. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 very beautiful, honestly. Um, just how like how far the roots go and you know, where they're, where they're from, but, um, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's, um, at least with the history of it, it's very much rooted in the nightclub scene, uh, it's very much an underground, it's very much, you can compare it to, like, hip-hop in America, right, the way it came out was very, um, underground, it was, um, I guess, like, for different class music, uh, black, so specifically associated with black African Americans, um, and so you know, so was reggaeton. It was associated with the, you know, uh, Afro Afro Latinx people in Puerto Rico, and um, specifically in the projects um, of Puerto Rico as well. Caserios, I think they were called, um, is like the equivalent of like the projects over there, and like that's where um, uh, a lot of it was rooted as well. And just kind of the nightclub scene, and so, uh, you know, it, it also started uh, mainly with these two guys. Um, you know, they were kind of like, like in the music scene, you always have someone who's like a huge influencer, right? So you have like these two, uh, you know, kind of influencer people called Vico C and DJ Negro. You know, in the mid 1980s, they start promoting reggaeton and like um, reggae dancehall and reggae en español in the clubs mainly, um, just because like. For one, like, it was such a huge crossover to get, you know, um, reggae dance hall songs in Spanish. It's actually what a lot of artists started to do was, like, uh, do covers in Spanish of these songs um, to really, like, just, like, reach a broader audience. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, in terms of uh, reggaeton, yeah, that was, like, the main thing. I honestly would just wanted to talk about, like, how it, it is mainly, like, rooted. Obviously, we can see we have, like, the main dance hall beats, um, you know, that are... A huge influence in that um, the reggae obviously and reggaeton and then the Spanish influences you know you can you can see it's a very much a um, African it's mainly African influence but then once you get you know the Spanish and that's like the European influence too I guess 
degree, right? But I mean, if we're talking about nowadays, you know, versus its roots, you know, like if we're like its its roots as a whole is definitely I would qualify it as working class music. Like I was saying, it associated mainly with the descendants of you know the people from the African diaspora um, in Puerto Rico and all these places in New York, the DR. It's all rooted in that, and then it comes from like a very working class kind of lower uh, you know section of society as well. And so, but like if we're comparing it from then and its original roots in the 80s and 90s to now, like it's totally different, right? Like in terms of like how it's popped off. Um, and so like a bunch of articles I'm reading, especially this one, um, you know, there's a, a writer, his name is Eduardo Cepeda, and he just talks about like the rise of, you know, reggaeton in the U.S. mainly, right? Um, and like how a lot of people are viewing it like... Alexa, play Despacito. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you know, like how and it's... I mean, don't get me wrong, it's definitely a, a good view to, like, kind of see it as a consolidation of, like, Latinx people in the United States, right? But, like, when people think of, like, consolidation of Latinx people, who like, what is the most common image that they're thinking of? Typically, like, you know, the mestizaje, you know, mm-hmm. kind of person who's, like, brown skin, you know, black hair, straight hair, they're always, like, you know, but they don't, they're not considering, like, you know, their, Af- their Afro-Latino person or Afro-Latinx person who is, like, um you know, the main root, you know, who of this genre of music. And so, like, especially, um, it's honestly, for me, has to do with that whole, you know, obviously, with the capitalist, white supremacy system, right, in terms of who's, like, actually getting promoted, right? But, I mean, yeah, it's 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 huge, unfortunately. It's definitely been whitewashed, um, you know, a lot of, because, especially nowadays, you know, it has that, doesn't have, like, classist tone anymore, but, like, now that all that's, like, the stigma of it is, like, being removed, like, who's left? You know, like, who's actually popular? We have Sha- Shakira, Maluma, <laughs> Luis Fonsi, right? Um, you even have Justin Bieber. Like, even in America, like, it's being labeled under, um, like, I mean, under the, whether it's techno, whether it's fucking dancehall, whether it's reggaeton, like, you still have the African roots. So, you know, like, you know, you have that one. Or what's what's it called Moonbatoon, right in techno, which is has that same beat but it's just electro. Um, yeah, stuff like that. I mean, that's all rooted in that. And like, like who's profiting off that? It's mainly like light skinned whiter people nowadays. You know, like the fact that a lot of people had to even like fight to even listen to this music, had to deal with all the shit that came with listening to this music, um, being part of that culture. You know, it's just like. Really, really, it's just, for me, it leaves a sour taste in my mouth, like, it's, you know, it's a rip-off, realistically, like, just, like, I mean, it, I'm not surprised, realistically, like, what, not to say what did we expect, because I'm not saying, like, that's always going to happen, but, like, I'm just not surprised, you know, if that was the case, but, yeah, it's, it's just, um, right, like, you had, like, sorry to cut you off, but you had, like, really hood people, like, um, Don Omar and mm-hmm. Tego Calderon, who were, like, being pioneers. pioneers and like they were in in games like they were talking about real shit going on in Puerto Rico and the <clears throat> and the Dominican Republic and in New York of like what it's like to be on the streets right and that, and I can I can tie that back to to Boogaloo as well there's a song called um Boogaloo Blues and they 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 start talking about like LSD has a hold on me and like that was so crazy at the time, but it was true because it was the 1960s and, like, people were on LSD. Mm-hmm. People were trying that shit out. And, like, 
that's what's like lost now in, in reggaeton, right? You have people like Maluma and J Balvin who like don't really don't know and yeah, don't know what it's like to grow up in, in El Barrio and like have dirt floors when all they've known is um, marble floors. No, yeah, exactly. And uh, it's definitely been overtaken, you know, like, especially, I mean, we can compare it exclusively with hip hop. I mean, to make sense to like, you know, mainly Americans, right? Like, just like how it's been, uh, it was mainly, yeah, like, uh, an, a black movement or like rooted music, you know, like, just like jazz, you know, and then like people come in, it gets commercialized, and it gets overtaken. And then now we have like people who have, you know, like, let's, let's mainly look, we can look at gangster rap or even trap. Trap especially, just because, like, you know, everyone's trying to do trap. And, like, how that the trap drums have moved into, like, you have pop trap. You have, like, you, you have white boys doing trash. And you have, you know, Americans or Caucasians, whatever you want to call them, Anglos, you know, doing trap music and overtaking the trap, you know, beat and drum. And when you had people, like, originally, at least with that, with that genre, you know, like Gucci Mane, T.I., who were rapping about their actual experiences, you know, and, like, actually selling cocaine to go and produce more record labels, you know, and things like that and whatnot <clears throat> and survive. And so it's, you know, it's similar back to, you know, to gangster rap, you know, look at the early 90s and whatnot, late 80s, um, you know, kind of similar um, lyrics wise in terms of topics, you know, talking about, yeah, like you're saying, like struggle, um, even uh, even talking about a lot of institutional raci uh, racism too. Um, uh, it's that one guy. Uh, the one you just said, Calderon, mm -hmm. um, he talks about that too. He and at least in a lot of his earlier records, you know, he talks about uh, the racism and uh, you know just kind of opposing it institutionally. And he talks about uh, yeah, just colorism in terms of like how it's being treated and exactly like how you're saying, like you know how they're treated for living their life and making that music and you know being attached to that kind of culture. And so yeah, I mean it's it's definitely sad, uh, at least in that regard, you know, like and it's. Unfortunate, just like how that plays out in society, you know, people have to, uh, people just get exploited in the meantime, you know, people have to be the first to be pioneers and unfortunately, yeah, it's, it's like never the pioneers who, you know, reap tend to benefit, yeah, reap the benefits of their hard work, you know, um, and that's just, that's, it's common here, it's common everywhere and um, yeah, I don't know, that's, like, the main thing with, you know, reggaeton was just the main history roots of it. I mean, you know, we have big players, I mean, in terms of overall, that weren't just, uh, you know, African by any means or, you know, of African descent. I mean, Daddy Yankee, you know, he was there from very early, early on, at least in the club scene in the 90s, you know. And definitely those people helped pave the way and, you know, they've, they've uh, contributed to the scene. I'm not trying to negate their, you know, contributions or their experiences, but... It's definitely, uh, you know, I guess time for us to be humble, you know, uh, to say the least, you know, and it's just being honest, you know, like, this is our roots of our culture, you know, and not even just like our to cause erasure, but, you know, the Latinx ethnicity, you know, that's the root of that, you know, and so I just think time to accept it, you know. I don't really know what else to add about reggaeton, you know, other than the fact that, um, you know, we can, it's... You can you can definitely hear the evolution and the thing that the evolutionary process of it was so crisscross, especially like how like, you know we were mentioning with the with um, mambo right um, and salsa and all that you know like it's very it's very quick it's very quick evolution like you have them 
like well, at least like the way I noticed with Mambo, like it was like certain, through a certain time period, and once like it kind of died out, like this new thing was born Quick. right after. Um, and so it was kind of like the very, it was like a similar thing. Like you had reggae, uh, and then like at least in Jamaica, reggae and then the dancehall reggae was being evolved separately from reggae in Espanol, in Espanol, right? So like, but those were happening simultaneously is kind of what I'm trying to say. And so like that, at least when the 90s, like that's when everything like kind of started to like intersect. Reggae in Espanol, um, and then you had um, reggae dancehall as well. Um, it started to, you know, inter intersect at that point. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, OGs, like, yeah, like Don Omar, you know, who helped pave the way. And, yeah, I mean, that's really how I can, like, in terms of reggaeton, um, you know, I really wanted to talk about it, especially just in terms of, like, um, I mean, we're going to talk about artists nowadays, yeah, like, um, you know, kind of them reclaiming their space, you know, for a, a genre that's really a part of their creation. Um, and so, yeah, but I also really wanted to talk about, at least in my opinion, to kind of segue, not only from like the musical history, but just contributions in general to history, um, whether, you know, it's black history or anything like that. I mean, we can just kind of go over the identity itself, um, at least, you know, uh, considering the context of the United States. I mean, in the United States, right, we're going to be honest, like a quarter of all uh, Latinx people who are here, you know, consider themselves Afro-Latinx, Afro-Caribbean, or of African descent with roots in Latin America, so to speak. And that was according to a 2014 survey by the Pew Research Center. And that was like one of the first like actual surveys to ask that question if people identify as Afro-Latinx. So that was the first time in like 2014 like we have in the United States on record, right? So like obviously like this whole identity, um, whether you want to call it a movement or awakening, uh, of an identity, you know, it's not necessarily fairly new, but, it, you know, like, it's officially, like, you know, like, after years of struggle, you know. It's and, officially being recognized. Yeah, there you go. It's officially being recognized um, by the state, but, you know, also society and culturally, you know. Um, I think, at least, I, I, you know, I, th I think it's something that needs to continually be pushed and resisted, you know, because people are... We live in a very reactionary time, you know, I, at least in my opinion, um, where people are, uh, you know, can be, or at least not everyone is, you know, but people can be very negative or like they don't like accepting the fact that that's their roots, you know, especially a lot of uh, white Latinx, you know, um, they're very for the whole mestizaje, pushing that whole thing, which like in the end, and at the beginning of the, you know, beginning of the day or whatever was created by their ancestors so like let's be honest like it's not like it's anything indigenous people have been practicing like indigenous people have still been here fully practicing who they are and being who they are you know on various levels across the world right i mean like let's be honest some places have done a whole lot better of the whole process of erasure others not so much you know and like um you know but realistically yeah like we need to start like being okay with these separate roots, you know, and acknowledging them, um, and not being, not picking and choosing when we want to accept them and like what that comes with, you know, because a lot of people, especially like, um, with, when it comes to like when people are first, at least like when I noticed when we first radicalized, like the whole mestizaje is definitely like a good radicalization tool, I guess, but like obviously it comes with its dangers. But I think, um, 
yeah, I think that's something that like we need to like start to push more and like push back against. Uh, just because like we need to allow these people to have their own spaces and reclaim their identity, reclaim their culture, um, and then just form a new culture on top of that. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, but yeah, like point being, it's kind of reactionary just because, at least in my opinion, like people have that status quo, you know, ideas, ideology of um, which is rooted in like a white whiteness. I feel like in our, uh, you know, white supremacy. And so, like, that's just, um, I don't know. For me, that's the main reason why a lot of these genres even got a shit ton of hate at first was because that white supremacist, classist, you know, bourgeois status quo was against this, you know? And it's just, like, and they, same stereotypes that come with hip-hop came with these music, you know, whatever decade you were in. Um, especially if you were darker-skinned performing these music. You know, you did not get the same luxuries or the same privileges as, like, um, your lighter skin uh, artists, you know, fellow artists, you know, got in terms of, you know, having the luxury to try out, try out these new things um, other than in the spaces that they created themselves, you know. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, it's definitely, for me, it's a testament to resistance, you know, uh, of one, white supremacy, but also just, you know, capitalism, you know, and the fact of, in the process of that, um, especially know, being rooted in working class struggle and, um, you know, just like where this music is even coming from. So I don't know, that's really what I wanted to say on that. Um, but even going back, you know, to the whole Afro-Latinx identity and contributions, you know, um, with that being said, you know, the fact that 25% uh, of all Latinx people consider themselves Afro-Latino is definitely huge, you know, and I think, um, yeah, I don't know, it's 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 really cool, honestly. I'm, I'm I'm all, obviously all for it. I don't feel like there's even like anything more to say besides you know support it. You know like why why be against it? There's nothing to be against. You know like it's that's part of the anti-racist struggle. Um, you know like I don't know you're not losing anything. You know I'm not saying like you can't listen to this fucking music anymore. It's just like yo know, like yeah like pay credit where credit is due. Yeah like. Yeah, that's that's what this episode is really about. Like, let's learn about the history so that we can pay credit where credit is due. Like, let's as much as I like Mark Anthony's music, right? Like, let's go ahead and give more recognition to the artists who started it, the Afro Afro Latinx started um, artists who started, like Joe Batan, like there's Joe Arroyo in in Colombia who gets like pennies. Right for for sounds that you know that he that his like that his culture started right mm -hmm. like African beats and collectively yeah collectively and and, and Cubans and Afro Cubans as well right like there there was a band in in the nineteen sixties as well called called uh, it was Machito's Orchestra it was called Machito and the Afro Cubans and like they named themselves that specifically saying because. I'm Afro-Cuban, that's who I am. I'm not going to deny um, my African side at all because that's part of who I am. And, like, I mean, during the 1960s, that's a radical thing to think, mm -hmm. right? And, and well, because the simulation, a simulation was the push before and was, like, the narrative before. And I feel like, um, yeah, like, the conversation is obviously becoming a more democratic process in terms of, like, these communities themselves 
being the ones to create and use these labels as opposed to like, you know, um, the white European colonizer caste system, you know, imposing like these names onto them, you know, and like reclaiming that and accepting that. And, um, you know, like we're not here to say like, this is a fucking caste system or anything like that. Like the point of this is to be proud of who you are and be proud of like what you're celebrating. But like, understand like it's different celebrating like your African identity versus celebrating like at least the way the um, status quo or the white quote white identity is celebrated is through the color of your skin, right? But I think the color of your skin, it's not because that's the he hegemonic position, right? It's not the same. Uh, and for one, like they're not just celebrating just their dark skin, but the fact that their dark skin is being celebrated was mainly due to the fucking fact that dark skin was criminalized, was stigmatized, and was fucking racialized. So, yeah, I mean, unless you understand that historically, like, don't come at me talking about, like, what is their, you know, black power but not white power? Mm -hmm. Bro, come on. Just go be German or go be Irish, since you know, like, you don't need to be white. You can go break yourself down and learn something, you know, and, like, hey, if you happen to be from 20 different countries, maybe you should go learn something about one of them, you know? But, yeah, I don't know. It's it's not the same context, realistically, and people need to understand that, you know, because at least, you know, we're going to talk about, like, at least 400 years, right, of oppression and continuing. It's not like it's ended, you know, like, not to continually depress people, especially, you know, my fellow comrades, but it's just, just be honest about the situation, you know, like, it's hasn't gotten, I mean, it has gotten better, don't get me wrong, it has gotten better, but... It's not where it should be, at least in my opinion. But yeah, I mean, not even just music. I also, you know, but I also want to talk about history. But just to go over a few things, you know, um, Alisa, there was an interview with Amara La Negra. Um, and she talked about colorism. She did it with Huffington Post and anti-blackness. Yeah, she, what she mainly was saying, you know, but she's like a mainstream artist. Uh, somewhat mainstream, at least. She's popular now. Uh, but she was just like, quote, I think it's unfortunate that there are so many Afro... Latinx all over the world that we're not given the same opportunities based off the way we look. It's not that we're not talented, it's it's not that we're not educated, they just don't consider that we have what they consider to be, quote, the Latino look, you know, which is obviously what I was trying to refer back to earlier, like kind of, you know, lighter skin, brown skin, mestizaje look, um, you know, which I guess is like the common one, you know, like, I guess, not to be racist, but like, I guess people think of Mexican, yeah. Um, you know, the common, I guess, look in that regard, but yeah, I, I agree, and I think, you know, like, people need to get away from the fact that, uh, you know, like, the word lat lat Latino, Latinx is not like a race, you know, it's a ethnicity, it's like a cultural thing, um, you know, race in the sense is like uh, biological facial features, you know, things like that, I guess, you know, um, from my understanding, and then ethnicity is more of a cultural uh, roots and whatnot. So I mean, like we just have a cultural root, and that is, you know, the result of whatever the Spanish did, uh, you know. And so, but yeah, I mean, I in terms of uh, just talking about, uh, you know, contributions. I think, um, yeah, the lack of, you know, Afro Latinx representation in history books, entertainment, and uh, other media. It definitely left the community, uh, you know, not seeing themselves in really any part of history or mainstream society, unfortunately. So I feel like, at least like what I've been reading, 
you know, I'm not here to speak for them or on behalf of the community, but it just leaves people kind of leaving conflicted, um, you know, especially since it's not even a conversation, you know. It's it's like kind of like the Chicano movement prior to the Chicano movement, you know. A lot of people didn't know where they fit in, like, well, I'm not black, but I'm not really white, you know, so it's just like, where, where do I fit? And it's, I feel like that's kind of a similar feeling, at least I can imagine. Um, but definitely, I mean, there's definitely been a lot more visibility within the last few years. Um, and so, let's see. Shit, shit, shit. I found my notes. Okay. Well, um, shit, man, there's a lot to talk about. Well, I mean, yeah, in the last few years, uh, you know, we've seen a rise of that identity in the U.S. with, you know, a lot of artists, actors, and everyday people, just, you know, going to social media to talk about it. Um, and, you know, realistically, um, well, I will go back to, like, uh, a lot of the U.S. history, right? But, in fact, um, one huge contribution was, and in fact, it's very embedded in U.S. history, is that they're response, a lot of Afro-Latinx people are responsible for establishing what is currently uh, currently the, the city of Los Angeles. Um, you know, so in 1871, uh, you know, 44 settlers arrived in what would be present-day L.A. from Mexico. And according uh, to the, you know, California Historical Society, more than half of them were Mexicans of African descent. So, you know, we're talking about uh, that huge contribution, obviously. I mean, let's talk about... What the City I, of Angels. Yeah, the City of Angels, man. You know what I mean? Like, it's huge. Um, you know, the Pobladores, as they were called. Um, actually, there's a bunch of huge, huge, huge erasure. Um, it was actually until, like, 1981 that they didn't acknowledge the fact that they were of African descent. Uh, like, until 1981, they didn't mention what race they... Um, were from they actually have like a plaque mentioning that the original you know settlers uh had like lived here i had like settled in like 1781 and like over 20 30 years the race of the original settlers had disappeared without a trace quote unquote and so like there's a bunch of erasure uh you know in that process um unfortunately and obviously i feel like it has to do with the u.s system um you know, just fucking white supremacy. Uh, you know, insert white supremacy. But yeah, I mean, re realistically, um, yeah, there's just a ton of people. Um, at least uh, during the Harlem Harlem Renaissance, right? There was a a woman during that time. She wasn't in Harlem, but Anita Scott Coleman, mm -hmm. um, who wrote that uh, short story, Little Gray House. Uh, it, you know, people attribute that to helping spark that Harlem Renaissance. Uh, her father was Cuban, um, and but her mother was actually a slave that her father had purchased, which is like a ooh yeah, yeah you know. But I mean, let's be honest, that's just the reality of like her history. But yeah, it's unfortunate that's the results. Um, but yeah, after that they moved to Mexico, where she was born in 1890. Uh, she later lived in New Mexico and L.A., and she went on to become a teacher. Um, and along with her husband, she started a boarding school for children, uh, which is, you know, like a huge contribution, you know, being able to come from, I wouldn't say from nothing, right? Because, I mean, they definitely seem to be, from, I guess, an upper-class status if her father could purchase a slave. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, a huge, huge contribution. And, uh, you know, a lot of her uh, history 
uh, a lot of her works were uh, featured in this a magazine called Half Century Magazine, which is uh, a really common magazine for quote educated and biracial readers at the time. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's definitely attributable to or, or around the Harlem Renaissance around that time. Uh, and yeah, even uh, at least um, in this regard, right in California, I think it was in California, yep, in California, uh, there's an Afro-Puerto Rican woman who helped fight segregation in schools um, in the case of Mendes versus Westminster, which helped end uh, segregation in California schools, so school districts, so Felicitas Mendes and her husband Gonzalo who was a Mexican immigrant, fought against uh, you know, an Orange County school in Southern California, which wouldn't let their school, uh, their kids attend you know, a white school. It was clustered in their neighborhood in 1943. Uh, but it was really just known for mainly ending segregation for Mexican-American children, but Felicitas was of Puerto Rican and specifically of African descent. Uh, you know, and so that just fails to get mentioned uh, you know, in that whole process. Uh, you know, despite, you know, having many Mexicans in the community and, you know, as, associating with the Mexican culture, she definitely acknowledged her Puerto Rican and African roots. Um, and she was known as La Prieta, uh, which is at the time, which is known for men to having dark skin, um, which, according to one of her daughters, uh, and quote, you know, to one of her daughters, she was seen as black in Arizona and Mexican in California. Um, so, you know, just culturally, depending on where you're at, you know, you have that duality of that identity, you know, and so very dialectical. It's very all of this is like at least with the development of you know the music, it's very dialectical. You know, you have um, I don't know, so beautiful. It really is just because I mean you, the two identities coming to being united in one identity, and just the struggle of you know the of wanting and of like trying to kind of you know, um, explode, not necessarily explode, but like just express and, um, be fully fulfilled. And, uh, I don't know, it's, it's a beautiful, um, I think you just, you really notice the, the beauty of the struggle to a degree. And I'm not trying to like epitomize a shitty situation or romanticize a, a very shitty situation, you know, but I definitely think, um, you know, we get such beautiful music, um, from, you know, resistance. And so I think that's, that's really awesome. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people, especially nowadays, I mean, not trying to, you know, praise the American system, but I mean, there are a lot of people making some strides, like Grace Diaz, uh, she, you know, she's the first Dominican-American woman to be elected in the U.S. after, you know, being an immigrant, you know, coming from the DR, um, and so she's very visible with the whole Afro-Latinx identity, um, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, I mean, um, that's kind of mainly like what I wanted to talk about, honestly, is just trying to deal with that. And uh, I also just wanted to give people more examples of like people to look up to, you know, or whatnot, so to speak. Um, and so, yeah, let me just get this all ready. But those were just some people, you know. Um, we have other people like, um, let's see, you know, Medium, Jimenez, Roman. Um, but, you know, um, let's see. Hold on, hold on. Okay. So at least with U.S. history, right, um, a lot of, the, you know, the African-American history or Black History Month uh, does include a lot of Afro-Latinx people and individuals who helped 
contribute to both communities, you know. So, for example, um, Miriam Jimenez Roman, she was, she's an activist, she's a writer. Uh, she produced a series of, like, a bunch of announcements and workshops and stuff to, um, mainly to the Afro-Latinx community to, in regard to the U.S. Census. Uh, so she writes this article called Check Both Afro-Latinx and the Census. Uh, so it's pretty much she's just encouraging to for the community to check both on the census form specifically targeting black Latinx and it can't uh, you know to challenge the uh, quote prevailing notion of Latinx as uniquely exempt from standard racial categories by claiming both national origins and black identity Afro Latinx asserting the continuing significance of race both within Latinx communities and in broader society at the very least being counted on uh, at, on the census as black and Latinx brings attention to a social group that has been long invisible and subject to ongoing social and political marginalization. And so, I mean, realistically, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I don't want to keep turning back to resistance, but I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely all rooted in that and unfortunately this white supremacist uh, colonization process. Um, and I don't know, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but in terms of uh, just trying to, you know, talk about the conversation, I definitely think, um, Okay, anyway, so she uh, mentions good things to talk about as a community. I mean, just mainly because we tend to be one of the biggest social groups in the world who do kind of insist on our, like, ethno-racial mix. Uh, you know, even as, like, but even though, uh, she says, you know, even as the mestizo or mixed identity expressed variably as la raza, rainbow people, or mutts, uh, is, in, is a commonplace collective designation. Uh, Latinx are also understood to be of any you know, which is like unique, which because like, or like weird for her contradicting because you know we're understood to be of any race. Um, so this apparent, you know, the contradiction can pretty much uh, be be traced down to ideology and nationhood and things like that, and of trying to unite um, various peoples, which is all rooted in like complicated like European history. I feel like to it really is because like. Unfortunately, a lot of, at least philosophy that formed modern-day countries is based in European philosophy of nationhood, of property, of things like that. And so, I mean, we're kind of past the point, unfortunately. I'm not, I'm not here to reject nationhood because at the times they were actually really revolutionary, but that's just where they're rooted in, uh, realistically, you know. But anyway, so it's rooted on one hand... Uh, you know, because, for example, nationhood ideology emphasized, uh, quote, racial mixture, or you just mixture in general, uh, just because that's really what it needed. You know, you need to, in turn, to ensure, like, social cohesion. It makes more sense in Europe why it happened more smoothly. I mean, there were tribes, right? There was Teutons, there was Gauls, there were Goths, there was Britons, but they were all white. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not to negate on like the differences culturally but they were all white you know so in terms of like a racial unity yeah it's very very easy to get that in europe right and to, to kind of see the aftermath and like see how like italians have a mix of all their tribes but you know like there's not like you know there's not like this huge racial disparity i guess is kind of you know like how we're seeing it now in the americas um but yeah, uh, pretty much it was supposed to be associated with racial democracy, uh, but even, you know, but that's obviously not the case because whiteness was continued to be seen as privileged, 
while people who were indigenous and you know of African ancestry were viewed as something to uh, to negate, to reject, uh, to be overcome or ignored, you know, because unfortunately to the white European colonizers, indig indigenous identity and African identity are fucking unfortunately rooted in quote savageness and uncivilized, uncivilized, right? And that's all based on European culture and shit like that. Um, which, I mean, we can break down, but it's all a long story, you know, uh, realistically. Um, it's rooted in colonization. But, yeah, I know, um, unfortunately, um, fuck. Okay, so at least um, where she interprets, it kind of leaves people in a very, like, kind of ambiguous, kind of weird state when we don't talk about it because, you know, they're too dark to conform to the mestizo ideal, uh, but they're not quote, black enough, or African-American enough, I should say, culturally, you know, uh, to coincide directly in America, which kind of leaves people, it's that whole dialectical duality, you know, of like, not being able to unite the two, unfortunately, at least as of late, yes, which is really good, but before, you know, it was really hard to unite the two, uh, but there are other people who are really important and, you know, he contributed a lot. Um, you have P.D. Tomas. He was a really good writer. Uh, I mean, he was a he was an activist. I mean, he wasn't too huge, but um, P.D. Tomas was um, pretty much a Puerto Rican Cuban writer and a poet. He wrote this book called Down These Mean Streets, which was pretty much a like um, it was a book like uh, which was unique at the time. Um, because it was written based on his own experience, it, but it was written in like his own language. It's equivalent, I guess, to kind of like Soul on Ice by, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, guy from the Panthers, um, the other faction, not the new faction. My guy. <laughs> The main guy with the glasses and the beard. Um, it's not brown. It starts with the C. She uh, married to Kathleen. Kathleen Cle Cleaver. She yeah. He was married. To, uh, she was married to Kathleen. Oh, what's his name? Fuck. Something Cleaver. Yeah. It doesn't matter. He was a huge ass dick. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was kind of an asshole. But anyway, kind of. He was a huge asshole. Yeah. He got. I mean. We're going to sign every day. But yeah, he was an asshole. Um, but yeah, it's kind of equivalent to that. But, you know, Piti Tomas, he was, he was born to a Puerto Rican mother and a Cuban father. He grew up in Spanish Harlem. You know, a lot of, that's a common thing, you know, especially, with, uh, you know, it's these huge pockets of culture uh, that get formed where a lot of these people come from. Uh, at least these huge, you know, heavy influencers, you know. Uh, but he grew up in, the Sp in Spanish Harlem in New York, uh, which, you know, at the time was associated to be critical, uh, you know, to be riddled with crime and violence. Uh, you know, according to Tomas, you know, children were expected to be in gangs, you know, at a, at a young age. And, you know, he wasn't any exception. You know, he ended up, uh, you know, getting actually put in jail, um, I think, you know, through association, through one of the events that happened through there. I'm not exactly sure. But, I mean, you know, he was exposed to racial, you know, racial discrimination, you know, in the United States. Segregation is very much a thing and having darker skin. You know, in the in the era of Jim Crow was like not to I mean it was it was pretty shit like that's not even sure but it was total shit like 
people just have no fucking actual reality, unfortunately, of what that was like. Um, you know, he ended up spending seven years in prison, uh, for, uh, you know, because of that. But, you know, after reflecting on whatnot, he ended up writing a, a book in prison. Um, and he got out and, you know, ended up helping a lot of youth, uh, you know, not go down the same path. Um, down These Mean Streets was written in 1967. Uh, and it was just one of, it was an autobiography. But he's part of the New Yorican movement, uh, which, you know, he's one of the main poets uh, throughout that whole movement. Um, and so yeah, he's a huge contribution, especially, you know, for the creatives. Um, a more modern one would be Gwen Ifill, right? Um, you know, uh, I'll just read this article quickly from Baltimore Times on her. But, uh, you know, she's considered to be one of the most successful African-American newswomen in U.S. journalism. Uh, but, you know, she has a lot, a lot of roots in, I think she's Panamanian, actually. Her father was Panamanian. And let me see. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let me get this. Yeah, okay, anyway. So she uh, she was Panamanian. Her father was Panamanian. I think her mother was Puerto Rican or Cuban. Um, and so... Okay, so we'll cut that out. But anyway, so she 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 was of Panamanian descent. Her father was from Panama, and her mom was from Barbados. So uh, it's pretty much like in terms of like her roots, you know, where she comes from, and you know she was pretty, uh, pretty you know successful. Everyone knows her in CBS. She was in sixty minutes. Um, and she worked for New York Times, NBC News. She had a career that lasted for 50 years. And so, I mean, she began her career at the Boston Herald. Uh, you know, she ended up working, moving up four years later, working for like an evening news show. Um, she ended up doing, being the co-anchor and the editor for the PBS NewsHour uh, with Judy Woodruff. Um, and she was honored by the American News Women's Club uh, for excellence in journalism. So, I mean, realistically, she's a really good journalist, according to, you know, everyone who's talked about her. And she's made huge contributions. Um, let's see. I mean, a lot of people, for example, uh, like there's this uh, journalist, Dorothy Gilliam. You know, she was, what she said was about her was, um, you know, she's an extraordinary person with brains, heart, who had tremendous, tremendous impact on the world of journalism for all women, but especially for African-American women. Um, and Gilliam, you know, 77, she was the first, uh, black woman, um, to work for, her. Gilliam, at least, you know, was the first black woman to be hired at the Washington Post. Um, so, you know, I mean, all these people, you know, have direct and in, indirect in, in contributions, you know, in terms of being inspirations for, uh, you know, the next generation. Um, and so that was going to fill, you have Felipe Luciano which he was a young lord. He's actually one of the first, uh, he was also part of this group called the Original Last Poets. Um, And they were like a a, a spoken word poet coalition group of uh, African-American writers and Afro-Puerto Rican writers um, who at the time of the 60s and 70s just were talking mainly about, you know, um, you know, the, the, the projects, you know, living through life and living with their identity, uh, with their, you know, Afro-Latino identity and their black identity. Um, you know, he was, 
Uh, there's a there's a nice little excerpt on him, but uh, you know he's also born and raised in Spanish Harlem. Uh, he was part of the awakening of the new consciousness uh, rising among Puerto Ricans in New York and uh, you know across the countries in the 1960s. You know, with the Young Lords, he helped push the whole Puerto Rican independence movement um, at the time, and even helped uh, pretty much set up like a Puerto Rican version of the Black Panthers. Uh, in terms of like their programs, you know, they also helped push a Puerto Rican news program. And in terms of like his poetry, he helped publish a lot of it in uh, the Young Lords newspaper, Bailante is what it was called. Um, and so that's where he published a lot of his work, honestly. Uh, but yeah, the original Last Poets here was an ensemble of African-American and Afro-Puerto Rican performers, poet performers. Uh, and pretty much <clears throat> a lot of these people, including Fred Hampton also, um, were the early contributors to rap um, and hip-hop, you know, before that. that's A lot of this uh, spoken word to music um, is where rap comes from, you know, rhythm and poetry, right? Oh yeah, that reminds me. Joe Batan was like had a rap album back in like nineteen sixties. Yeah, like there he as as much as Boogaloo that he did too. He like made a rap album too. Like I'm sure I'm sure that's like brushed over, but yeah, he he made a rap album. And one of the founders of Latin American music. No, honestly, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying, like, a lot of these influences go back really, obviously, to these communities, right, uh, but they go back further, and uh, they're a huge part of our culture nowadays, I mean, hip-hop is, like, the most mainstream genre now in the United States, you know, and that's highly due to a lot of these pioneers and these African and whatever, Afro-Latinx communities, but, you know, African communities. African descent. African descent communities. Um, I should say, but yeah, and like, unfortunately, yeah, it just it's really negated in our society, and um, yeah, like we've, I mean, going back to it, right? We gotta be honest and start kind of honoring and accepting that and teaching that history to really get a deeper understanding. I feel like of the music that we listen to in the first place. Like, what do you do? You just like, do you not care? Like, I don't know. I mean, I I'm be honest. I'm not gonna bitch at people, you know, or get at people for not caring about where their mu uh, music comes from, but yeah, I mean, it definitely matters, you know, because like, we wouldn't have it if it weren't for these people, for these communities, but yeah, and so, let's see here, those are some of the people, but I also wanted to go down this list really quick. Right, and so then you have other people in terms of like major, like, you know, history connected to the United States. You have Jose Celso Barbosa. Um, and so he was a physician, physician, sociologist, <laughs> and a politician. Uh, he was one of the Puerto Rico, uh, he was one of Puerto Rico's first, um, like, people of African descent to receive a medical degree in the United States. Um, and so, you know, that's huge, you know, in terms of, like, being a role model, you know, like, to think about that, you know, like, I don't know, like, who doesn't want to be like this guy? Um, you know, he also served in, the, you know, he was, he's way smart. He's super smart, super talented. He was able to serve in the executive cabinet under the governor, um, you know, under Governor Charles H. Allen, fucking, you know, white colonizer governor, and joined the first Puerto Rican Senate. 
so, I mean, he advocated for statehood, you know, which was uh, national rights independence. And he established El Tiempo, which was the island's first bilingual newspaper. Um, and this is on, on an article from Remezcla. Uh, they do a lot of good research. Um, but then you also had artists like uh, Silvia, Silvia de Villard, or Villard. Um, so she was uh, born in Tennessee originally, or actually no, she's born in San Juan, sorry. And then she went to go study in Tennessee, uh, you know, uh, I believe in musical history, but she was an actress, a dancer, and an activist uh, during that time. Um, and she mainly faced um, a lot of discrimination while she was at university. Uh, but then she really, pretty much when she moved to New York, she really uh, began to take an interest in her roots. You know, you're exposed, you're, you're living in Spanish Harlem, you're exposed to your community, the music that your community makes, and, uh, you know, there's a unity. And um, that's really where Spanish Harlem has this uniqueness, I feel like, in terms of, like, producing uh, this kind of resistance and this identity. Because um, I feel like that was, like, like, the epicenter of, like, the commingling was Harlem, right? Basically, also Spanish Harlem. Um, so there's just a lot of beauty they put down down there, I feel like, in my opinion. Um, she was able to go establish the Afro-Boricua El Cucuy um, Theater, which uh, Pan-American Pan Association of the New World Festival named, quote, the most important authority of, of black Puerto Rican culture. And so in the 1970s, uh, her and this uh, woman, Carmen, Carmen Belen uh, Richardson, uh, spoke out against racism faced by a lot of, you know, uh, Afro-Latinx and black uh, artists in Puerto Rico at the time, you know. Yeah, I mean, she was a huge pioneer, oh, not pioneer, but a huge activist in criticizing, you know, the a lot of racist casting in television, in the media at the time, and a lot of the limited opportunities, right, for black actors, actresses, and the ongoing use of blackface at the time. Which, I mean, that's 1971. And she's still criticizing blackface. Yeah, yeah. Like I think, like the most recent, the most recent case we've had of blackface is like what? Like last week. Like last week, exactly. Like people are still in blackface. Ooh, I wanna. People are so fucking. Like, mad. are you fucking kidding me? Grow up. Yeah, I don't even, it's, it, for me, it's the biggest headache, you know, to see that, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it also goes over Felipe Luciano. Like I said, he's the founder of the Young Lords, well, he, he was involved with the Young Lords, but he's specifically the founder of the Young Lords New York branch. Um, and so, uh, the Young Lords did start in Chicago and New York, you know, so he was one of the original ones. Uh, and they had similar goals to, you know, the Black Panther Party. Uh, it was pretty much considered the catalyst for the second um, Boricua, you know, movement in the U.S. and for mainly specifically leading it into more of a radical political route. And so he focused a lot on the liberation of the oppressed communities. And uh, yeah, I mean, um, the original Last Poets is definitely huge. I yeah, definitely, in terms of like, um, I think something that we should consider now to look at. Uh, when it comes to hip hop, but then there's a lot of there's this other poet. Her name is Juliana Constanza Burgos Garcia, and she hailed from Carolina, Puerto Rico, and so she traveled from um, Puerto Rico to New York to Cuba, and her she influenced pretty much every place that she went. 
Um, she was her a lot of her poetry was uh, you know had a lot of feminist themes and talked about uh, about social equality. Um, she was mainly influenced uh, by a lot of Afro-Caribbean writers um, who came after her. But yeah, I mean, she graduated from the University of Puerto Rico with a degree in, in teaching, and uh, she was able to join this uh, group called the Daughters of Freedom, with, and um, uh, also, well, okay, yeah, with Daughters of Freedom, which was a branch of the nationalist movement for Puerto Rico. It was the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party specifically that you know wanted statehood, uh, independence from the United States, stop being a colony in the territory, and so I mean. It's, Especially in Puerto Rico, right? We're talking about the struggle, and not and even outside of uh, you know Puerto Rico for the struggle for liberation. Uh, you know, who are the roots of that struggle? It's definitely Afro Latinx Puerto Ricans, you know, Afro Puerto Ricans, and uh, we have to pay tribute to them. Um, especially, I mean, uh, in the the wars against Spain as well. If we're being honest, because a lot of the former slaves and the slaves were used. For that and so and uh, you know they were also uh, even if they weren't fully racially accepted unfortunately these you know European colonized uh, you know European descendants I should say or what are they called Spanish Argentines like the people who are like the first generation you know like who are a fan of Santa but they mm-hmm. want statehood for their territory that they were born in like Bolivar, you know, he was born in Venezuela, so he considered himself Venezuelan, mm-hmm. not Spanish, right, in that regard. But, you know, they were they were included in the rhetoric of nationhood, but when it came down to it, obviously, same shit, you know, Jim Crow-type laws, Jim Crow-type society, you know, a racist society. Um, yeah, um, unfortunately, I mean, I mean, all the places have done better. Cuba, for one, you know, I give a shout-out to Cuba for... Uh, really trying to improve the, the lives of, you know, a lot of Afro-Cubans, you know, even if at first, I don't know, I guess there's a lot of hate, you know, I'm not, uh, and I think that had to do with the initial tone of the revolution, unfortunately, but, um, yeah, then we have, like, uh, this other uh, uh, person, his name was Arturo Sch- uh, Schomburg, and so he was um, pretty much a historian. He was the main reason uh, for the awareness of the African diaspora, um, he was reportedly inspired by a teacher who said people who uh, were who of African descent had no history. So he pretty much dedicated his whole life to showing how vital that, you know, um, <laughs> their contributions were. Dang. Yeah. He was like, fuck you. Yeah, he's like, fuck you. This is what's up. And so after moving to New York, he became an important figure in the Harlem Renaissance. Um, he joined the Revolutionary Committee of Puerto Rico. And he even co-founded the, the Negro Society for Historical Research, which was pretty much a basis for a pan-African movement. Uh, it united African, Caribbean, and African-American scholars. Uh, and so pretty much, I'd say, you know, laid the seeds for that. Um, you know, it focused mainly on uh, uh, black history and black literature. Um, and so, yeah, it was really awesome. He even founded a library that was specifically for, uh, you know, black literature and history, um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it was really awesome, I mean, I definitely think that's a huge contribution, um, to one, because it's, it sets, you know, the prerequisite, you know, for, because no one else was keeping track of this history, you know, and that's the unfortunate part, is that the history 
at least uh, from before, is, you know, it's not really people's history. It's, it's the history of like the state. It's the history of the government, of the people in charge, right? And unfortunately, a lot of the people in charge weren't black. Uh, and that's obviously having to do with European colonization and the African slave ship. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely think in terms of having a deep impact, it's so huge. It's really, it, it is huge. And it's, we're not trying to do this to further isolate, but it's to educate them in terms of like who we are, or at least, at least in our ethnicity, you know, where it comes from. And so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, no, I don't have anything else to say other than um, it's time to raise more Afro Latinx Latinx voices um, and make sure like like even the history of our own music, you know, mm-hmm. is is known, right? Because everybody wants to say, oh yeah, salsa is ours, and yes, it is ours, but let's you know recognize who made it right and uh, a lot of the moves right uh what's that one comedian who talks about it i forget his name but he talks about it uh as being an african love dance right a lot of the moves and uh, the hip shakes uh let's be honest fashion come with that shit they did not come up with a lot of the hip movements a lot of the dance moves it's a lot of it what is rooted in that and uh you know and also in indigenous culture whether um Let's just talk about music in general, right? Like, what, whether it's folklore, cumbia, salsa, bachata, reggaeton, right? It has indigenous or African influence. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm not doing it to further cause... I don't feel like we need to do this to, to further cause division. But I feel like it will help actually unite us more, you know, once we can accept that. Because it drops ego, you know? It drops ego. It really does, I feel like. Um, you know, and I don't know, hopefully it inspires people, mm-hmm. you know, in a good way. And like, yeah, like you say, I definitely think, uh, you know, more of acceptance, more of a conversation needs to be had. And, uh, you know, hopefully, obviously in time, right, like we continue uniting and, uh, you know, build bridges, not only, you know, with Grafro. Not the next people within our own community, but you know, the African American community, all communities of African descent, all communities of indigenous descent, uh, you know, and such really build more, you know, connections really, because I mean, you know, I don't know, at least it's totally visible in Latin America how, at least how much we should be united, right? How, uh, especially just with all our influences, and um, yeah, I don't know. Fuck that misty sake shit, you know, like, find roots in who you are and uh, not just, to, I mean, obviously don't make, if you're white specifically, don't make it about the color of your skin, right? Um, find roots, you're Spanish, you're Irish, shit, I don't even know, go do, a, I need to go do a, need to do a DNA test, you know? Like, I don't even know where the fuck I'm from, like, in terms of European, you know? Um, probably Iberian, Spanish, whatever, but I think my grandma's, like, Eastern European, so I don't know so. Explain. He's a Nazi? No, like prior to that. <laughs> no, like prior to Nazi migration, she, she was like Czechoslovakian. But like she came in like the 30s or like 20s, 1800s. It's like my great great grandma, so it's not like that. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's Nazi grandma. 
But anyway, we'll take that part out. <laughs> okay. Well, um, like and subscribe. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Um, like, like this. Share this. Um, you know, give it to someone else so they can learn a little too. Um, if you'd like to donate to our Patreon, please go ahead. We need another microphone. We will have been using one. And that's why it's like, that's what this, this podcast was. This episode has been much of more of a conversation because we're passing it around. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely uh, we'll put our Twitter in the link and honestly message us, uh, you know, to continue, uh, you know, not also donating, but, you know, spreading the movement, you know, spreading the, the education and, uh, you know, uh, like you said, it will go definitely go to getting a new mic, but even it will go to, you know, uh, the collective, uh, Red Lotus Collective, you know, pushing the winter supply distribution and further future distributions, even as the season changes, you know, because uh, it's only expanding, really. I mean, we, uh, we're we collaborating with other groups, Union for Street Solidarity, Brown Berets, Utah Against Police Brutality, to really kind of uh, push that drive, so... Please donate, and if you want to get involved, and uh, you know, be part of an organization, and uh, not just be a follower, but also have influence and be a leader and be in the driver's seat. Yeah, hit us up. You know, like revolution is only coming closer and closer every day. You know, and uh, yeah, be safe. I don't know. <laughs> have a happy Black History Month. Yes, happy Black History Month. Uh, black power, for sure. Black power. Sale para